My time? Your time. Okay. Well, here we go. This has been a little more daunting than I thought it would be. I thought I would just sit here and tell you stories. But then I realized that that wouldn't work. And I had to set some parameters. And I had to organize it a little bit. But condensing 50 plus years of Otter Creek is terribly difficult to do. But we'll start where I started. I don't want to make this about me, but it will be because those are, these are my observations and it's what we lived and it's what we were part of. And um, I can't do it any other way. I'll, I'll try to be as objective as I can and Bob will keep me honest, maybe. Um, but um, I, I still have to do it from where we were and where I was and where I am now. And uh, maybe it will give you a sense of some of the people that we walked beside to get here. I realized that if I talked about all the people that influenced us, there would never be an end. So I'm going to set the parameters and limit my people to those who have gone already passed and deceased because, I, I, you know, Many of us, thankfully Bob and Fletcher and I and a few others that have been here a long time, we're still a work in progress. So um, we'll talk about those that I thought began this journey that we have made to get to where we are. You've probably read about the very earliest times and I wasn't here in those, so we'll slip over that very quickly. But I think we have to set the stage. This church started in a home on Otter Creek Road, uh, the home of a couple named Campbell. Um, they were Scots. And Mr. Campbell drove a school bus. Uh, Mrs. Campbell was a small little red-headed lady. And they had a great heart for the children. And they wanted the children to have Bible study. So they arranged to bring the children to their home and start their own little church. This was in 1929, and I think we settled on that, Fletcher, because some people were thinking 28, but I have the transcription that Ruth Rucker wrote of Miss Campbell telling the story, and she said 1929, so that has to be our hallmark, I believe. But Mrs. Campbell was an amazing little lady. She was a woman of great faith. Uh, the kindergarten children used to go up every year and she would tell the story of the beginnings of Otter Creek. And they would carry their, they would t pull their little red wagons and they'd take presents from Miss Campbell and, and sit on the floor and she would tell them the stories. This is the Otter Creek <coughs> kindergarten? This is, yes. It started in what year? No, no, this is later. This is after the kindergarten. The kindergarten started after I, before I came or right about the time I came. 1960. 60, we came in 61. Um, but one of the things I always remember was Miss Campbell for years was the one who made the communion bread and I have her recipe for the communion bread and everybody that used to take turns then making the communion bread always used Miss Campbell's recipe and I remember one time uh, I had made it and and I wasn't sure I thought I did something wrong I wasn't quite sure but I didn't have time to redo it 
and the communion passed us. We always sat behind Buddy and Bernie over in what was a little wing. We sat there because if our children misbehaved, it was the easy way out. And um, Bernie picked up the communion bread and she ate it. She smacked her lips and it carried all over the side. <laughs> um, those are those are the sweet memories. So that was the beginning. Uh, just to kind of say in the beginning, this church has always been a diverse church in membership, in ideas, in the way we wanted to do work, and the way we wanted to live together. But the hallmark of it to me has been the fact that we have always been unified in our diversity. And I think that's why we've survived. And it took some hard roads and some hard problems, but we worked through them. Uh, I think I also have to tell you where I was, where we were when we came, because we had our own journey that we that drew us to this place. Um, Larry and I grew up as probably many of us did in a traditional church environment. Uh, we I grew up in southern Kentucky, and he grew up in up in the Cumberland Plateau, and our families were both very strongly involved in church. My father was an educator and um, we moved to Kentucky just about a year before the war ended and there weren't a lot of men around so um, my dad he, he never preached as a vocation but he preached if anybody needed him and wanted him to and he he was really a teacher rather than a preacher he taught that's how he preached it was just an instinct with him but um, when we moved to Kentucky, my dad would preach any time they needed him, and he just started out preaching some at the church in the town where we worshipped. Then I came to Lipscomb and, and graduated. Larry had, was a little older than me, two years, and he'd gone to Georgia Tech. Uh, I told people that my husband-to-be went to a heathen school but uh, he survived it and um, we married a week after I graduated went to Atlanta for Larry to pursue a master's degree and we worshiped at Druid Hills Druid Hills was a wonderful church just a, just a wonderful church a lot of people like we were students but it was it was a very diverse church as well and it was a great fellowship and we just loved being there um, Clarence Daly was preaching there then and Clarence at the time Larry finished his work and I was teaching in a high school, a large high school in West uh, Atlanta and Clar Clarence left to go to Union Avenue and we left to move to Florida and everybody said that we were trying to follow Clarence as best we could <laughs> and we did and incidentally I only learned a few months ago that his granddaughter goes to church at Otter Creek. Um, Clarence was a, a big influence on our life and on our on our beliefs and, and the way that we matured in our beliefs. Uh, then we moved to Florida and um, this was an experience that we weren't prepared for and I want to be realistic and kind and 
objective in my recounting of this. But at that time, there were influences on the church, particularly in West Florida, that were very negative influences. And, we ha and there was only one church where we were worshiping in Clearwater. And we encountered a lot of that. Uh, they didn't have elders. They had one <coughs> self-appointed elder. But if you had a different opinion, you didn't say anything about it because you would be pointing to the back door if you did. And we tolerated that about as long as we could. We had a mentor in St. Petersburg named Charlie Haslam who on the bookstore. who um, owned a bookstore that covered a city block and we always found the bookstores. And Charlie was, he was a great man. He um, preached and was an elder for one of the churches in St. Petersburg. And we would go down and commiserate with him about how we didn't feel that we were worshiping or that we were getting anything from, we were getting very negative because we heard nothing except thou shalt not. And it was a negative form of Christianity that we were not comfortable with. So we told Charlie we were going to come and go to church where he went. And he said, well, I have a better idea. I said, there's some people that are forming a little congregation down in uh, an area between Clearwater and St. Pete. And uh, Lipscomb alum was teaching in a school and he was working with them. And said, we'd be glad to have you, but these people need you. And there were about 30 people that were trying to find their own way to worship and to be what they thought God needed them to be. And um, so we, we joined them. We had to repair the church. They had bought an old holiness church and it was very near the orange groves. And we had in the church migrant workers and, and teachers and, and uh, ethnic mix and a little bit of everything. And working with that church was one of the best experiences of our lives, I think. And those people loved us so much, and we loved them. And when we left to come to Nashville, uh, Larry was working with industry, and we always knew that he'd come back and work on, and finish his work on his doctorate. But, um, we were living in a little suburb of Clearwater. Jenny was born a week before we left. She was always late. Everything she, that child did was late, including getting to Earth. <laughs> and um, when we left, starting from 30, there were about 75 people in that little church. They came to the train station to see us off. She was so young, the pediatrician wouldn't let us fly. So we came up on the train. And... Um, they wept leaving our house and they wept all the way to the train station and we were by then crying too when we left so it was a very profound experience for us but when we came to Otter Creek we came because we were in need of finding a Jerusalem and we found it uh, we came primarily because Ed Neely Cullen was the preacher at that time Ed had preached for my home congregation in Franklin and we thought very highly of him and when we came, we found a um, number of college friends of mine here. And about that time, Otter Creek had about 250 people, I think. What year it, was this? Is that about right? Yeah, but what year was it? 1961. Bob, was that about right? That's about right. Uh, <clears throat> and um, it was quite a mix of people, too. Uh, we had, with a young baby, 
uh, Otter Creek had no nursery. They had a nursery, but they didn't, nobody was attending it or, or organizing it. They had a cry room, and and that was for real for us because Jenny had colic for nine months. And <laughs> thank goodness for a cry room. <laughs> Sometimes we even had to leave that. But um, Ruth Rucker, Ruth and John Rucker were, I guess, among the first people we met. Ruth had raised a pretty good family, including some foster children. And she said, well, nobody went to class. Nobody tried to go to class with their babies. She said, let's just start our own class. So we took over the nursery and the mothers with babies to um, rock us to take to church without disturbing the worship met in that nursery and we taught ourselves mostly Ruth taught us and oh what an experience that was for me because I was a first-time mother and she taught us so much she taught us an awful lot of scripture but she taught us how to be good wives and mothers and it was a formative period for me most of the women were mothers of several children and this might like Bernie this was Tim was her last child. She hoped was his last child, she said. <laughs> and, um, and Tim and Jennifer were the same age. But um, it was quite a sharing group to be with that group of women. Otter Creek has always been distinguished for strong women. And, and I, I think that it was always difficult when you talked about the men without bringing the women into it because it was always a partnership in in the work. It, it there was little g gender discrimination in terms of recognizing that women had thinking abilities and they had talents outside of a kitchen, although we had substantial talents there too. But uh, it. The tone was a little different from what you usually experienced in a normal Church of Christ um, because of that one thing and I think that permeated all the way through and it was a reason for a lot of the positions that we came into at a later time. Uh, my dad used to tell a story and I, I told this once at, uh, at something in the early years that um, my dad educated himself and by the time he was raised in the Alabama and, and Tennessee line and his father had a cotton farm and uh, they planned their school schedules around when they had to work on the farm and when they had time off. So by the time my dad was in the eighth grade he was teaching school half a year and then going to school the rest of the time and uh, he had some maiden aunts who had attended who attended a little small church I guess there are about 20 of them and there were no men they were all widows or single women and, and there were no men so my dad started going down and preaching for them and when he went to preach he did everything and so pretty soon he said what do you do when I don't preach for you and they said well we preach for ourselves and he said, well, why can't you do some of that when I come? <laughs> it was very difficult for him to take a position that the women couldn't do what the men could do. That was, he said, a revolutionary thought at that time. And I suppose that it, it was. But um, 
that was this was one of the trends that early on I think was a precursor of of the way people thought and the way it followed. Otter Creek was the most open congregation we had ever attended. You felt perfectly free to express your opinion and somebody felt just as free to disagree with you and nobody made you go out the back door and that was freeing for us because we had been in such a limited environment before that time. Um, one of the things that that came to my mind, um, one of our elders here then was Dr. Fred Hall. Dr. Hall was a dentist. Dr. Hall had a favorite book and it was Revelation. And when he taught Revelation, sometimes it went on for years. He did four years once. Without stopping four years? Okay, I was going to say three. So that's like verse by verse. And anybody that can I mean, take we took it. We did take it verse by verse. We looked up every reference you could, the Old and New Testament that might tie into anything. But Dr. Hall pretty well thought he was inspired for Re to teach Revelation. I'm curious, what was his overall yeah. interpretation of Revelation? Was he well, he, some people or, said he was a premillennialist. He wouldn't. He wouldn't admit. He would that. admit to that. But when you look at his teaching, that's what you came out with. Mm -hmm. Well, Larry frequently disagreed with Dr. <laughs> Hall, uh, and uh, I was not in on this because by the time Jennifer was two years old, I was teaching a class. Always for twenty years, I was teaching a class. I guess until I started graduate school, and then I gave it up. But um, I don't. I was not witnessing. I'm a, I'm going from Larry's account. But he he disagreed with something Dr. Hall said, and, and Dr. Hall just kind of put him down. And Larry took an attack and came back with another opinion. And it was getting pretty lively. Were you? I don't know if you were in there then or not. But but um, finally, Larry decided that he'd better behave. And so we went out, and, and Ms. Hall followed him out, and Dr. Hall came out, and the class was over. And uh, Ms. Hall just came up to Larry and said, you can't do that again, because he knows what he's doing, and you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and and he, she said, you know, God told him what, how to interpret this book. And Larry said, well, I think he told me too. <laughs> but, you know, they came out and they agreed to disagree and um, they, uh, Dr. Hall was from Jackson County and Larry's parents were from Jackson County, so they even claimed kinship. But that was, a, that was what you could expect from these encounters most of the time. And some of the classes got pretty raucous and pretty heated. But they'd leave the classroom and they'd hug one another and agree to come back and disagree the next time. But it, there was always unity most of the time in, in these kinds of things. Well, not to pick on a scab or anything, but can you recall one or two issues that, that seemed to create the most sparks? Um, well, it depended on what you were studying, really. I think that was what would kick it off. Um, Bob, do you know any particular ones? See, I was not in class. I was always teaching. So well, that later, a little later than this, a big issue was speaking in tongues. The charismatic. Well, that, I'm going to get to that. You're, yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's a little mm -hmm. later than this. Mm -hmm. so that was a more profound... There a lot of things in Revelation that, you know, you can, oh, yeah. 
Uh, <laughs> around the years that, that they just started talking about speaking in tongues. Around what year was that? Late 60s. Mm -hmm. Late 60s, early 70s. About 68, I think. 68, maybe. About 68. Mm -hmm. That is amazing. Mm -hmm. Because if you mispronounce something at my old church and they thought you were speaking in tongues, you'd have had to leave. Like, to the like a cough. There's, there's more to come, I see. Yeah, well, well, we'll talk about that at a later time. Um, I think one of the best outreaches that started Otter Creek out was the kindergarten. Oh, yeah. Uh, without doubt. Started in 1960, and I was the first treasurer. Mm -hmm. well, you years, and the state put in a rule that said boards had the boards of children's organizations had to rotate, so that's how I got out of it. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, as you know, you, if you're a CPA, you get to be treasurer if anything comes along. Right. Well, this, yeah. this, this came about primarily from Ruth Rucker, who was needing something to do besides she had raised her children and she needed something that challenged her. And Kennedy Green was one of the people involved in that in the beginnings. And uh, most of the teachers in the early years were people that went to Otter Creek. Uh, it became recognized as one of the premier programs very quickly. Uh, Ed Neely was involved in the beginnings of it too. Uh, Larry and I both were on the board at different times. I think Larry chaired the board a couple of times. Um, but uh, it began, it first drew on people from the surrounding area somewhat and from uh, not just Church of Christ people but but just people, neighborhood people. What was the Otter Creek School one of the first among Churches of Christ? Or the kindergarten? I don't know that. It was. Was it? Well, I don't, I'm not sure if it was before. It seems to me it was a little bit before. I think I think there was another still, one. It was still one of the first. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was. Okay. Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, and um, you know, uh, Ruth directed it. Uh, some of the early teachers were um, Gussie Hackney, who was wife of Howard Hackney, who was one of our elders. Um, Virginia Carnes, uh, she and Jack. Members here, uh, Joanne Sinclair, who's no longer here. Uh, later, Mar much later, Marge Kitty. Um, but uh, in terms of just the diversity of the people that were represented in the kindergarten, uh, we had a uh, family <coughs> who had twins, twin girls. Uh, the father owned a Plymouth dealership. The little girls' names were Tara and Lara. They were Greek. And usually, uh, a nan we'd say a nanny, uh, they had someone, a live-in person to take care of the twins because the, uh, Mrs., the, the lady of the house worked at their business. And Laura and Tara were really, they were a piece of work. And they were in Gussie Hackney's four-year-old kindergarten. And um, Gussie was a sweet, kind, gentle, motherly, grandmotherly, person and she loved those little children and during the year Gussie was in a car accident and she was pretty badly hurt and uh, the, 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 girl, the young twins I'm having a hard time keeping from saying names <laughs> the young twins always called Gussie Hackney Miss Hackney and we'd correct them but they'd go back and call her Mrs. Hackney so the children of course prayed very continually for 
Gussie to get better. So one day, the lady of the house, the twins' mother, came, she was always very well dressed, came rushing into the building and, and happened to be there for some reason, I don't remember why. She said, I have to see Mrs. Rucker, this has to stop. And we found Ruth and she said, Mrs. Rucker, I am going crazy. My girls, they're praying 24 hours a day for Mrs. Hackenay, and we can't do anything but pray at our house, and it's got to stop. We can't take any more praying. <laughs> so, <laughs> that was a tremendous influence there <laughs> on, on little children. <laughs> and um, there, were, there were a lot of influences. The kindergarten, the kindergarten children <clears throat> every year cooked Thanksgiving meal for their parents. And they went to the farmer's market and bought their vegetables and they really did it under the supervision of their teachers. And, and it was a different experience for most of these kids. To this day, <coughs> Jenny hates turnip greens. She will not eat turnip greens because she would come in every day and say, I hate turnip greens. I have washed enough turnip greens to last me for a lifetime. If I never see another turnip green, it'll be too soon. And she's pretty well stuck to that because they had big tubs, you know, and they'd wash. And they, well, they fed a lot of people, and they would just wash lots and lots of turnip greens and, and <coughs> other things. But it was a marvelous experience. The, um, in the very early years, they were allowed to use an old version of Granny White's cabin, which was down on Granny White on the property of the Beasley property, and, and Everett Beasley was a, uh, an elder here in the early days. And he and, by the time we came, Mr. Beasley and Miss Dosha were not coming to church regularly, they were really aging. Um, we used to go up and visit them. They had a lovely home. Mr. Beasley owned a wholesale business and, and Larry's mom and dad owned a general store and they bought from Everett Beasley. So we had connections there. Uh, but they had restored something to look like the old Granny White Tavern. And Miss Beasley loved antiques. And so for a while, they would let the kids do their kindergarten meal at Granny White's cabin, they called it. Ultimately, it was too small to handle the people that we had. And then the, ha the cabin was vandalized, being right on the main road, and, and eventually had to be torn down. But those were the kind of experiences they gave them at the kindergarten. And it, it really shaped the life. My children can still tell their kindergarten stories. Uh, and and they're, I have a daughter that's 50 years old, so that's been been a long time. So the kindergarten was amazing. Um, I have to to speak a little bit about the influence of two people that were beginning ministers when we came. Well, one particular. I think the person that really started shaping Otter Creek from the pulpit was Jennings Davis. Uh, Jennings was not here very long. Uh, I was in school when he was preaching at Otter Creek and he only preached about two years. Um, Jennings was a great advocate for racial tolerance and he left Lipscomb and went to Pepperdine because of Lipscomb's racial intolerance. But from what I came to Otter Creek once in a while with college friends who, during the time that Jennings preached here, but I wasn't here all the time, just 
occasionally I would come. I always liked to hear Jennings. But from the people who did experience him in a continual uh, time, Buddy and Bernie were very close friends of Jennings and Vera, and, and they told me a great deal about the influence that he had. That he was the first teacher, preacher, who really started us on a path of change, of thinking for ourselves, and, and exploring ideas. Uh, I, just before Jennings died, Jerry Rushford had asked me to, well I'd gone to Jerry, I was doing biographies of our preachers for the room, and um, so, somebody asked me if I would get one of Jennings, thinking we'd have one in our archives at Lipscomb. We really didn't have one that would suffice. And so I called Jerry Rushford and asked him if they had one at Pepperdine. He said he had just redone one that he would send to me. And so I got that one. And he said, you know, we, when we were conversing about Jennings' influence, he said, you know, you need to write to Jennings and tell him that you think that he was very influential in this. So I wrote about six pages and, and mailed them, to, and Jennings was not seeing at that time, Vera read it to him. And Jerry told me later that she would read that to Jennings over and over. And I just did a composite of, Jennings, this is where we came from your time, and here are some of the things we've done. <coughs> and, and, you know, we look at you for part of that. Did he preach in the early? He preached, he preached, he preached, no, he preached in 56 and 57. Oh, wow. I was in college when he was well, preaching here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It was before we came. But when we came, Ed Cullum was preaching here, and he's a relative of Fletcher's. Uh, Gail. Gail, okay. I was accounting for both of you. Um, Ed had preached for my home congregation in Kentucky, and he was the primary reason that we came. We uh, knew he was here. We also had some college friends, my college friends, who were coming to Otter Creek at the time. And so that was one of the reasons we came. I think Ed really took us on a long path in so many ways. Ed was unique in his preaching style. He posed a lot of questions, but he never answered them. That was just characteristic of his methodology, whether he taught or whether he preached. You know, he, he left you wanting a little bit more, but you weren't quite <coughs> sure what it was because he, he gave you too much to think about. So you had to explore on your own, which was the reason he did it. Um, one, of the, one of the funny stories that um, this kind of hinges on Buddy Arnold a lot too, because Buddy and Bernie were just coming back to Otter Creek. They'd been here when Jennings was here. Then Buddy did, went away to Indiana to work on his doctorate. And they came back about the same time we came to Otter Creek. And uh, more than anybody, Buddy Arnold taught us how to worship. He always made worship meaningful. And uh, he, he set a pattern at Otter Creek that has continued with, since that time. He, he, he made it a part of what we did. Uh, we had a dear lady who was descended from pioneer preachers. And she liked the old camp revival songs. Buddy had, were you here then? Not Buddy. 
No, okay. No, they were not in Okay. Um, Buddy loved the Moravian hymns. They were beautiful, and he, he just, he loved them, and we sang them a lot. And um, this lady didn't particularly like them. She didn't really, I think, think they were scriptural because they were Moravian. <laughs> so every time, and he sang them a lot because he liked them, so every time he would get up and announce a Moravian hymnal, this sweet lady would take her songbook and she would slam it shut and then she would do a slam dunk into the rack in front of her in the hymnal and it just disrupted the church. You remember that, Bob? <laughs> and nobody knew quite how to handle it. They didn't want to hurt her feelings. They tried everything they could try. So one Sunday, Ed Neely got up to preach. Not to preach. He was preaching, but he got up and he had a hymnal in his hand and he said um, usually Buddy would have opened the service Ed said will everybody please stand and sing on Jordan's stormy banks I stand and we did and we sang every verse and I think went back and sang some verses all over again <laughs> and, and he finished and he put the hymnal down to the side and said, and now we'll worship God with Buddy Arnold. And you know, that ended that. And as it evolved, the dear lady ultimately became Buddy's cheerleader. She just, she became very, very close to, to Buddy. But, you know, that was the way we resolved some of our differences. <laughs> and I guess in some ways it was as good as another when you, you kind of let God lead you through somebody else to show you the answer and and, and in that case it was it was one that happened um, but Buddy contributed so much to not only to the worship music and to the whole worship service because he very carefully designed every worship service that he led but um, he had an impact on just the tone of the of the church as well. One of the hallmarks of Otter Creek when we came, and I guess it still is, it's just done in different ways now, but it was such a hospitable church. The hospitality that we enjoyed from the people was really amazing. And when we came, we were pro-graduate students, and we had some very fluent people, but I don't think there was a home at Otter Creek that ultimately in the early years of our being there that we weren't invited for a meal. It was just what you did. And we didn't have, uh, I, I, I was a fair cook, but we didn't have the kind of homes that were comparable to some of the places we went. But you know, it never mattered. We'd invite people after Sunday night church and have hamburgers, that was hamburger night. And we had wonderful conversations and we developed deep friendships and the love just flowed and it didn't matter. It, it, it really it didn't matter because we were all a part of the same thing and we, we were trying to do the same thing and we were trying to accomplish the same kinds of things and it just permeated the whole way that we lived and our children growing up in that atmosphere was something that I tell them all the time they need to be very thankful for.
I, I hope they are. Um, the second big thing in terms of shaping the um, patterns was the way we addressed the benevolence of the church. And we had different committees, and I think we were on about three or four committees, some of which I think I've probably forgotten. <clears throat> but we were, on <clears throat> we were on the benevolence committee. We had, we had some people who had such a heart for service. Just it, it, everything, they, they were people who could do anything they wanted to do and had the means to do it. But they had such a overwhelming desire to help the people that didn't have what they had. Uh, one of those I think of was Charles Armstrong, who was one of our elders a little bit later. <clears throat> uh, his wife Helen, I, I used to call the original garage sale lady. If there was ever a family that needed anything, Helen and Charlie knew about it. And Helen would drive her big Cadillac and she'd go to the garage sales and if somebody was living in a house and they didn't have a place to sit, Helen would go to a garage sale and somehow she'd get a couch or something or bed in that Cadillac and go take it to them. And then she'd fill it with food and take to them. And that was, they just did this all the time. That was their, that was how they lived, doing this kind of thing for other people. You know, that's a grandchild, right? I didn't know that. I'm so glad. <laughs> they really did that. They d I know they did. Let me uh, tell you one quick story about Charlie Armstrong. We were doing Rim in the Hand. It was snowing, cold. There were people who came. Who, there was one guy like had on cloth shoes. And Charlie gets in his car in the snow, drives over to you know where he lived in Hillwood, and uh, got all the shoes in his closet. <laughs> two grocery sacks full of shoes, brought them back that night and passed them out to everybody that was here for that. So everybody went on with them. I mean, went back that next morning after a life group. And that's just one of many things I can tell you about Charles. Well, I, there. He, he wasn't, it didn't matter if he didn't have any shoes, he was going to give everybody were, else some. There were uh, a million stories about oh, yeah. Charlie and Helen, all good. Um, Charlie was the original candy man. Yeah. <laughs> and he always came to church with a sack of candy and the children just gravitated to Charlie. He'd have two on each knee yeah. uh, handing out the candy and anybody that came knew, come on, we'll go find the candy man because he was always there with it and he just, he loved those children and they loved him. So they were, they were the original benevolent, the most effective benevolent committee of two people that we had for a long time. And, and Charlie was an engineer. Yeah, he was a civil... story about all of that. But not only would he take material things, but he would go fix things. Absolutely. Yeah. Came to my house and fixed a lot of things for me. Paul, <coughs> Paul I don't remember many of these de de details, but he um, served, I think, in Italy, World War II. Char yes. Big Red Wine. Charlie Armstrong, yes. And it was not... It, 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 was, <coughs> it was tough. I remember him describing amazing mm -hmm. World War II service. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We had a young man, Wolf Sauerland. I remember him. Who worked here. Wolf's father and Charlie fought on other sides. That's right. He was terrible. That's, That's correct. Mm -hmm. That's correct. I forgot about that. Mm -hmm. 
Amen. 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 I'd forgotten that. Fellowship Hall. Memorable to me. Well, back to the committee. Um, for another uh, influential mm -hmm. member was Howard Justice, Howard and Zama. Uh, Howard had worked in children's homes in Texas and he came to Nashville and he was working for the state in social services. Um, at the same period of time, my father was head of uh, an orphan's home and school in Kentucky, Potter Home. <coughs> uh, my father had spent most of his life in public education, but he went there because um, he had always had a feeling about the need and they had to have somebody with school experience to run the school. But it bothered him a great deal that when the children came to the home, they were trapped there. They couldn't get out. They couldn't get in a family with a, a normal um, family environment because there was no way to adopt them from the home. They had no social services. And we started exploring ways to change the way we did our child care and make it a little bit more effective. On this committee were Glenn and Honor Huff, who were also benevolent souls. Glenn had a grocery store in Brentwood that if you're kind of old like me, you would, or not even so old, you would remember Huff's Grocery. And Honor and Glenn were like Charlie. They, they, they had a heart for service. And uh, Larry and myself, and Rennell and Doyle Gall, and Martha and Charlie Brandon. And we formed a committee that was exploring the ideas of what could we do to help the situation. And the key thing was that for the homes to do it, you had to have a social worker there who could, who could handle the certification requirements to make the children adoptable. Uh, so the first thing we did, and we didn't have a lot of money to put into an endeavor like this, but the first thing we did was to establish a scholarship for someone in social work to commit to going and working in the children's homes, some of the children, one of the children's homes or however, whatever. We also visited a lot of the children's homes. Some of them were receptive to the idea. Some of them said, well, uh, you know, we're giving them what they need here. And we just focused on the ones that were receptive to the concept. But um, Van Ingram, Tom Ingram's father, was the first recipient of that scholarship. And he finished and went to work at Spring Hill at the Tennessee Children's Home. Then later went to Mount Dora and spent, I guess, most of his career at Mount Dora in Florida. Um, Nick Boone was also a recipient of that scholarship. He was working at Madison. <coughs> uh, this was much later. But that was the first step. Then from that, we started developing an idea we were, our needs were bigger than what Otter Creek could do by itself. And we had to find a way to expand and, and do it effectively. And Howard and Ed Neely were kind of ex officio members of, of the committee, and they contributed a lot to the thinking that we came out with. Uh, Charlie Brandon was insurance executive and good businessman. And they came up with the idea to start that if we could get 100 people to commit to a contribution of $100 a year, we could maintain 
Howard who had agreed to start the the effort as, as director of the we'd already given it a name agape um, and we could make it work but we knew we had to, that was only a starting ground we had to expand and we met um, at the airport to eat with the group and we invited other churches to send representatives to hear the story. And we had a wonderful reception and more people were buying into the idea than we ever anticipated at the beginning. We much surpassed the hundred members. Uh, Miles Ezell, who was at UNA, was a very creative force in, in starting and working with, the, with us in those early years. And Charlie Brandon was the first um, chairman of the board for Agape. Uh, but eventually we told the story in a lot of different ways. Uh, Larry and I and all, later Oliver and Betty Yates were, we went in pairs and we would go to neighbor, to congregations all over Middle Tennessee and as far as we could drive and get there we'd go <coughs> primarily for Sunday evening services and would talk to the people about Agape and try to get the church or individuals interested in getting into the work and, and helping us with it. Uh, Madison was a great ally in the, in the early years as was Unichurch uh, and West End I believe came in. Who, who else early on helped us with that? Bob, do you remember? Congregations. We had wide. We had a wide. We had a widespread. Yeah, we we went. Your specific purpose at that time. To recruit members for Agape. Donors. Donors. Ongoing. Building a base of ongoing donors. Fund operations. To then. And how are you expand, to expand to expand the work of Agape. You know, with, they were limited. Social We had to hire social. To leave his career at the state where he was doing well and, and come and be the original director. But we had people like social work agents. Mm -hmm, like Clarence Schaub, who was one of our elders in the early days. Clarence had was a contractor and he had a an office over in the Melrose area, and he was moving, he building a different office for his construction he company. He, he, he gave Agape their, little, their offices for uh, their home and renovated it for them yeah. to, to make it fit their purposes. And, and they were there for a long time until they, um, I don't know when they, I can't remember, should know this, I went through all this for the 50th anniversary. Um, but uh, they were there for quite a long time until they were able to buy the facility where they are now. Right. And I think they bought that during Tom Burton's. They did. That's what, that's what I remember rather than, than during Howard's uh, directorship. Um, also, we, uh, Agape, not only did we expand its base here, but we started uh, an Agape office in Memphis and one in Atlanta and one in Alabama and um, don't know how many how many there are all told now but it's the concept of it has gone I know throughout the south and and maybe beyond 
So it was, it was an innovative work. It was a creative work. It was a launch that we did in great faith that, that, it, would, that it would work. And I remember that I, I did a, a taping for Agape, which uh, during the anniversary, that they were going to um, use, they'd gotten a PR firm that was gonna try to do something on a TV station uh, for the anniversary year. And I taped a 30 minute interview and um, they had one, I got one quote of me on the, the early morning news and it was the one that I would have most wanted them to get if they had picked one. But I made the statement that we launched out on, with a lot of faith and, and many times we didn't know where we were going, but we never considered the idea that we would fail. It was not in our conscious thinking. We always felt that there would be a way to make it work. And, uh, and it did, and, and I, you know, God was with us in that work. There's no, no doubt in my mind that, that, that he was. Oh, I'm, I'm, I, I knew I wouldn't get very far, and I haven't gotten as far as I thought I would. Carolyn, I, I would just simply add as one of your descriptors about agape. Uh, within Churches of Christ, it had to have been a unifying work because there was so much pressures for churches to disassociate and split and disfellowship churches and all that craziness. But what a great, great thing among Churches of Christ. It is so unique <coughs> to see multiple. Well, we did, yeah, involved. and we did a lot of things that nobody would unify with us on. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but, um, then it was something that, I mean, doing for children was something everybody could agree on. Mm. They might not agree on how you did it, but, but caring for them when they couldn't care for themselves was something you couldn't really argue about. You had to do something about it. And um, it's, Larry always said that of all the things he did, being a part of the movement for Agape was one of the things he was proudest of. And that was a very strong statement coming from him. It kind of went against the culture, though, when you started bringing in unwed mothers and taking care of them, didn't you? There was there a lot of uh, pushback on that? There was, but, you know, it didn't bother us. And we surmounted it. I don't think it hindered us, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, there, we, we did have some. We didn't pay much attention to it. We just went on and did what we had to do. We kept... A number of unwed mothers in our home, and you all did. And well, in fact, I don't. Know if this this may not be correct, but I would think that while some people might say, "Well, they got themselves in trouble, let them take care of themselves," the ones who came and their families would be very much supportive of someone taking them in, because uh, sometimes they didn't want to stay in their home congregation, but they would come. Well, we had some from as far away as Pennsylvania. Stay with us. So it was at that point not acceptable to be in that state for a young mother to be in that state. You don't want to be in that state. So it would be okay, they'll get out of town. Well, I remember what Myrtle Quarles always um, said when she would talk to the foster parents was, you know, you are responsible for giving these girls a look at a normal home family life that they have never experienced. Mm -hmm. 
that's a heavy burden to carry and to think about doing and it was challenging it, it, it was challenging but um, you know I don't it, it worked and um, did you have many churches at that time in the beginning that made contributions yes I'm talking churches you did yes and that's interesting because you guys were beginning this probably in the middle of the time when the non-institutional issue was at a peak and that's probably part of what you ran into that's in what Florida. Florida yes because that was a hotbed for that but Nashville had more churches and 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 you know it didn't hit this area as much as it did a lot of areas. Right. Yeah, it's funny, yeah, we, we followed you in St. Pete. We were there in the late 80s. And our assessment was they're still living in the 50s mm -hmm. because they were all hurt by the division that yeah. occurred about late 40s, early 50s over the institutional yes. movement. Right. And that's still a hobby with Florida College. Yeah. And then uh, to hear you talk about Clarence, he was a he was the essence of love and positive uh, preaching positive messages and being positive and to hear hear and walk in Haslam's bookstore and it, I didn't know who he was and when we moved there it was this humongous bookstore and you go into the religious section and he had the whole whole section of Church of Christ authors and I thought that'd be some connection well we didn't found out who it was but and he had he had used bookstore and a retail yeah, bookstore. Humongous bookstore. Like well, it's significant that we have a granddaughter for a man who mm -hmm. was talked about a lot here tonight. <laughs> but there's also a I think this would be right great granddaughter to Clarence Daly, who's a member here, and her name is Daly. 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 From Clarence. I had a letter from her. And and that's how I knew she was here. I, yeah. I didn't, you know, I wouldn't have recognized the name. Mm -hmm. So I had I had no idea. After one of my grandchildren. <laughs> the grandson is our dentist. <laughs> my my cousin and, and aunt were very active in Union Avenue. And as a, a child, we visit Union at, at Clarence Daly and preach mm -hmm. preached there for many years. A prince, very good man. Does anyone remember what Claire, what the Charlie Brandon would say up to the last months of his life when you'd say, you look good, Charlie? <laughs> it's never been a problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, my watch say it says that I probably don't have time to launch into a new subject. Next week, right? I guess I have to mark well, I haven't yeah. gotten a third of the way through what I thought I would. So oh, no. you, know. you haven't even touched on missions and that was That was the next one. Oh that was your next one. I'll start on mission I'll start on missions the next one. That's okay. where I was going next. Uh, yeah. That was great. Thank, thank you. 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 Thank you.